Well, good morning, everyone. Your bulletin says you have a guest preacher this morning. I don't know about the guest part. (laughs) Just strike that out and write old shoe in that place. We're in the fourth chapter of John for our message this morning. And though you have just been standing and seated, I will ask you to stand again for the reading of the word. If you will follow me, please. You can follow in your Bible or the screen on the wall. John 4, beginning in verse 5 and reading through verse 26. Shouldn't be using that at all, Mark. I hope. Hmm? It's okay. <laughs> there we go. So let's hear and read the word of God. And so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And his disciples, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you've said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. For an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Or in my paraphrase, Jesus said to her, you got it. Thank you. Be seated, please. Several weeks ago, oh, several months ago now, I had a very interesting experience. But several this summer, actually, of voices from the past. Let me go back to the past, 1975, August. I was pastor at Potomac Baptist Church at Sterling. There came to worship with us one Sunday morning a man named Sam Vance. We had a number of teams that visited people following that kind of thing, and I sent a team to see him that, uh, that week. And the team that went to see Sam and his family was made up of Tom Johnson, who's seated back here. Tom, stand up. Where are you? I see you. <laughs> Thank you. And Doug Perdue, two good men in our church. And uh, Tom shared the gospel with Sam. Sam was not saved that night, but he was shortly. And his testimony is that that presentation of the gospel that Tom made to him that night was powerful as a part of his salvation. In about mid-May of this year, Tom and Mary and I had the occasion to be reunited with Sam. Following his profession of faith, his trusting Christ as Savior. Back in 1975, he professed Christ as Savior publicly. I baptized him. He was part of my new believers class, was in our church for about a year, and then moved away. He stayed in touch with me briefly um, for some time following that, and then I lost track of him some 37 or so years ago. And then this spring, this past spring, came in contact with him again. Back in 1975, when he was saved, he had two little babies, a little girl, and an infant boy, a couple of months old, named Dale. Well, Dale is now, in his mid-30s, a flaming evangelist. Tom is a pastor of a Baptist church down in West Virginia. 
I don't know how many people have become born-again Christians because of those two men and the witness that they have had in the years intervening. It has been a wonderful thing to be recharged and renewed in our acquaintance and to see what God has done and what he will do from a witness to the gospel. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, a witness to the gospel. We have a mandate from our Lord Jesus to make disciples. One of his last words to us before he returned to heaven was this. All authority, he said, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, as you are going... Make disciples of all the people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you all the days to the end of the age. Or as he put it in John twenty twenty one, as my Father has sent me, I also send you. We have a mandate. From our Lord to make disciples. Some of us earnestly desire to do this and feel inadequate to do it. Some of us just ignore what Jesus said to do. There are a lot of things he said that we like and we want to get in on, but this one we like to push it aside and just ignore it. And this morning, let's learn from Jesus, the master disciple maker. Now I'm thinking that Jesus gave invitations to people. As he went about, he came to some men that he had already met who were fishermen, Peter and Andrew. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. He said to Matthew, a tax collector, despised man, follow me. And Peter and Andrew And Matthew followed him. He was on his way to Jerusalem for the last time, passing through Jericho, passing by a sycamore tree. And there was a man, a little man, named Zacchaeus up in the tree. Up a tree, out on a limb. You ever been there? I have. And Jesus looked at him, called him by name, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Well, is that an invitation? Zacchaeus took it as such. He skinnied down the tree, and somewhere between the branch and the ground, salvation hit him at least. He hit his pocketbook. 
told about how he'd get things right with people if he'd done anybody wrong. But Jesus said this about him. He said, today, salvation has come to this house. There was a man dying on a cross next to Jesus on that terrible Friday. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There was a rich young ruler that came to Jesus asking about the way of eternal life. What good things shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And he did not. He turned away sorrowful. He did not. A man who was on the top echelon of the religious pecking order, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, top dog, Nicodemus. You read about him in chapter 3 of John. Came to Jesus asking about these things from God. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He told him about a new birth. And not long after that, Jesus was making his way with his disciples from Jerusalem to Galilee. And he chose to go through Samaria instead of the normal route up the Jordan River on the east side of the river back to Galilee without getting in the lands of the Samaritans. He chose not to do that. And he met a woman, a Samaritan woman, sinful woman. And who is not a sinful woman or a sinful man? Are you here? And he offered her living water. Nicodemus did not understand the idea of a new birth. The woman at the well did not understand living water, the concept, at least not yet. I want you to notice that Jesus made some choices. We're learning from Jesus. He made some choices. He chose to go through Samaria. And let me say to you that the choice he made was against the rules. Jews don't do that. He wasn't bothered by the box that culture puts him in. He chose to speak to this woman. It was against the rules. You don't do that, especially a Samaritan woman. He chose not to debate with her when they got into a conversation. There were issues between the Jews and the Samaritans, racial issues, religious issues, 
Jesus chose not to debate those. She wiggled and squirmed to go to those things. He chose not to debate them. He stayed on course. And that was contrary to the fleshly nature, at least to my fleshly nature. My inclination is to argue. And I expect that is with many of us. He chose to stay on course. Jesus chose not to be limited by cultural barriers. It's against the rules to do these things. He's going against the grain in culture. Kyle Eidelman has written a book that I commend to you named Not a Fan. The book says, in effect, this. You can be a fan of Jesus, and there are those who are. Know all the details, all the intricacies, a lot of theological points, like a fan of some star on earth, but not a follower. But one of the points he makes in there, and he's addressing legalists, and he says, are you a follower of the rules or a follower of Jesus? Good point. And I take that point and apply it here to the culture that Jesus violated. He, was, he chose not to be a follower of the rules. And finally, he related to her because he valued her as a person. He valued her basic human worth. She was not too far down for him to care for. Nicodemus, top dog, was not too far up for Jesus to care for. Either one. And we learn from Jesus on both scores. Now let's look at Jesus and the woman at the well. And the whole point is you can do it too. Here is the master showing us how to do it. <clears throat> we can learn from Jesus. Let's do. First of all, Jesus initiated a conversation with a woman at a well. Give me a drink. And out of that, he created a gospel sharing moment. Casual encounter public place he chose not to be hindered by any cultural barriers the Samaritan versus Jews thing the barrier of racial prejudice nothing bothered him he wasn't stopped he chose not to debate the Samaritan religion versus the Jewish religion religion is not the issue Jesus is the issue and his place in your life and what he did for you. Jesus would rather win her than win the argument. We can get too caught up in the apologetic. He chose to win her and he did. Fourthly, I noticed that 
He was concerned for her real life situation. Go call your husband and come here. Now, I find this an amazing turn of events right here. Uh, The woman has just said to him, give me this living water. If she said that to me, I'm ready to go. He doesn't. (laughs) He talks about her life. Go get your husband. He wants a broader, more pervasive response from her and to reach deeper into her life and to reach deeper into her relationships. And he does. Um, I find that an amazing thing. Watch what Jesus does here. Give me this water. Go call your husband. Hmm. Up to this point, every time he says something on target, she tries to change the subject. But now she's on target, and he seems to change the subject. He's not really. He's got the big scene in his mind and in his heart. And then she falls back to wanting to change the subject and wiggle around again. I perceive that you're a prophet, and we know that Messiah is coming and and all of this, and you think it's place, Jerusalem's a place to worship. We think it's here on Mount Gerizim and all of this. And he used her objection to win her. He says, I, she says, I know that Messiah is coming, and when that one comes, he will declare all things to, to us. Here he is. One of the great I am statements of Jesus comes right here. He said many times things like I am. I am the bread of life. I'm the water of life. I am the Messiah. And the interesting thing about this is most of the time in Jesus' ministry, he is not wanting his disciples to know publicly, to identify him publicly as the Messiah. But here he does. And he tells this Samaritan woman, whom the Jews despise, that he is the Messiah. He nails it. And then the disciples show up. (laughs) They've been in town. They've gone to McDonald's to get some food. And they come back with their bread. And uh, the woman leaves, and she goes into town. But I want you to notice what happens. This woman becomes an effective witness to the Messiah Savior. She goes in town. And who does she go to? She goes to the men. These are the people she knows. And they know her. She goes to the men. She says, come see a man. She has met a man. A godly man. See a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ. And that's just the Greek word for Messiah. This is not the Messiah, is it? And uh, you see what happens now. Verse 30. They, they, uh, they went out of the city and were coming to him. 
And many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman, verse 39. And an awakening, or we might call it a revival, but it's not revival if you haven't been revived first. And they haven't been. It's awakening. A great awakening breaks out in this city of Sychar. This Jewish man, Jesus, at their request, they did not run him off. At their request, this Jewish man stays two days in their town. And many more believed because of his word. Now, a great awakening is happening in the city of Sychar because... Jesus, being tired, rests by a well and says to a woman, give me a drink. Now I want to fast forward many years until about a little less than a month ago. I was on my daily walk several weeks ago. I met a man. He was weed trimming along the fence. I had already met him earlier the week. We initiated a conversation. I chose not to be hindered by an age differential. He was 24 and I'm 25. (laughs) Almost 84. 83. See, there's a cultural barrier there that could have been a hindrance. Need not to be. And I asked him where he grew up. Told me Round Hill. I asked him, did he go to church when he was growing up? He said he did. And I asked him where, and he told me. And why did I ask that question? I want you to know that. I asked that question for several reasons. One, that was a springboard for me to ask two more questions. And the first of those two questions is this. In your spiritual pilgrimage, have you come to the place where if you were to die tonight, you know for sure you'd go to heaven? And the other of those two questions is, suppose that time were to come and God were to meet you at the gates of heaven and say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Those two questions become then the framework for our discussion of the gospel. I asked the question about his church background so I can do that. But I also ask it because his response may tell me whether God is at work in this thing or not. And in this case, it did. And I could see that God was already at work here in this young man's life. I was just getting in on what God was doing already. And the third reason I ask it is it may give me or you some clues as to what barriers may exist in his previous upbringing uh, that might be a hindrance to him. 
understanding or receiving the gospel. I was and am genuinely interested in his life situation, and we talked about his life. And I want to introduce this fine young man to you, Nathan Milam. Stand up, Nathan. Here he is. You want to preach while you're up? <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's my turn. <laughs> A new brother in Christ, and I am so rejoicing with what God has done. But let's go on. As I explained to him about faith... We're standing there by the fence, by the road. And I would like to have a chair to explain what I did to him. So I'm going to use this chair. Hope I don't get lost over there. I explained to him that there, you come to be right with God on the basis of faith. There are three kinds of faith. They're all good. There is faith that says, I believe in God. That's knowledge of the truth. That's not faith that saves. That's faith in that is truth. That's good. You have to have truth to go forward. That's good. There is another kind of faith that says, I trust God to get me through difficult situations. And I've had people tell me all kinds of things. Like I trusted God to get me over Blue Ridge Mountain when it was all foggy. Therefore, I know I'm all right with God. Well, let me tell you, that's foggy faith. That has nothing to do with salvation. I had a woman tell me one night that she knew she was right with God because she asked God to get her a new patio cover. And he got her a new patio cover. Actually, her husband got it. But that way she knew she was right with God. That's temporal faith. And by the way, that's good faith. But that is not faith for salvation. Faith for salvation has to deal with a central issue, which is issue of sin. And I use this example, this demonstration. Only I didn't have a chair. Right, Nathan? You just had to sit down on the side of the road. Say, so here, is, here is a chair, and this chair is positioned over a hole that goes all the way to hell. But now here's a chair, perfectly good chair. I believe the chair will hold me. Do you believe the chair will hold me? Yes or no? But it's not holding me. You have knowledge of the truth, mental, knowledge of the truth. When I have this kind of faith and I put myself in the chair, then it's holding me. All right? Now, we'll shift the metaphor, say that the chair is Jesus. It's positioned over a hole and it goes to hell. If I put myself, well, first of all, I believe Jesus will hold me. But he's not holding me because I am not trusting him. And here's the way some people do it. 
Some of you can't see, but I'm half on and half off. <laughs> right? I'm a halfway trusting him and halfway trusting me. If he doesn't do it, I'll catch myself. If I don't do it, he can catch me. That's not faith. I don't know what that is, but it's not faith. Here's faith. It is knowing the truth. It is acting on that truth. It is making a choice, a commitment. And you put yourself in Jesus. And I put myself totally in him. I would like to be able to draw my feet up into this chair, but the chair is too small and I'm too old. But you get the picture. Uh, Now, I'm trusting him, and if he doesn't hold me, down the tube. But he does hold me, okay? When we came to that place there by the road, Nathan's question to me was, like the Samaritan woman, give me this living water. How do I put myself in Jesus? Up to that point, I wasn't sure whether he was responding to the Lord or not. But now I knew. His heart was with it. He really wanted. And from there on, the presentation of the truth of the gospel to show him how to put himself into Jesus. And so we did that. And I explained the gospel. And as I uh, uh, came to that, we prayed there by the fence. Now, I've, in many a case, in somebody's living room, we've made a coffee table, a prayer altar. And we've knelt and prayed. I think this is the first time, Nathan, I've used a fence for a prayer altar. But it works, doesn't it? And he prayed from his heart, confessing his sin, repenting of it, and surrendering himself to be a follower of Jesus. And following that, I shared some scripture from memory. I did not have my Bible with me or even my New Testament, my pocket knife. Um, And I shared scripture with him for immediate follow-up. And the two verses I shared were these. John six forty-seven. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He who believes on me has eternal life. And we went through that. And then I said, Let's put your name in there. Verily, verily, I say unto Nathan, Nathan, who believes in me, has eternal life. And then John ten twenty-eight. Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. And let's put your name in there. I give unto Nathan eternal life, and Nathan will never perish, neither shall anyone pluck Nathan out of my hand. And we nail it down. And before we parted there uh, that afternoon as he worked by the fence, I asked him to do two other things. One is to tell three people within 24 hours what Jesus did for him. And he eagerly agreed to do that. He was excited to do it. And the other thing was to meet with me a few nights later to begin follow-up to growing as a Christian 
to become a strong disciple of Jesus. And we've done that. And now we have a plan to move forward for his growth and discipleship. All of these things happened. I want to give you just two pointers for personal evangelism. I could give you many, but right now, just two pointers. One is the central issue is sin. The lost person, his issue is sin. Every individual on earth is a sinner. The Bible tells us that. And anybody in their right mind knows that without being told. I have met one man in my life who said he was not a sinner. And if he lie about that, he'd lie about other things. He was, he was sinning right there, in other words. Well, we know better. And the sinner without Christ stands condemned because God is a just God and requires that sin be paid for. The sinner can pay for it by going to hell or he can trust what Jesus has done for him when he died on the cross to pay for his sin. A substitute payment for the sinner's sin. And Jesus gives it free. But it changes life. And the problem with the illustration of the chair and faith, and most illustrations, even good ones, have some weaknesses, and that one has a weakness. The weakness of that one is, when you put yourself in Jesus, he transforms your life. The chair doesn't do that. The chair does show that Jesus is holding you. He's doing the work. You're not. But... The chair doesn't transform your life. The second pointer I want to make for personal evangelism, that the sinner who has the central issue of sin needs a savior. He cannot save himself. It is not possible. If he lived perfectly from now on, who's going to pay for all that sin prior to that point? In my first pastorate when I was so green, I didn't know what I was doing. I, was, I had dinner. My wife and I had dinner in a home down in Kentucky. And I wanted to ask, and it was a home of people that were not born-again Christians. And I wanted to ask the lady, I wanted to know if she, where she was. And I asked her about her hope of heaven. And very casually she pointed from her rocking chair to a plaque on the wall behind her of the Ten Commandments. She said, I keep the Ten Commandments. That will not do it. We've already violated them. The Bible says in Romans 3.20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Jesus died to pay for the sinner's sin debt. And he did it. And he offers it free. So what is it, finally, that saves I've asked those two questions to a lot of people over the years, and I've had a lot of answers. One is, I love God. In fact, that's the answer Nathan gave me. I really love God, and I believe he does. I have no problem with that. But that doesn't deal with the sin issue. The sin issue has to be dealt with. 
People give good works answers. I was, <laughs> some years ago, a young Marine, or just out of the Marines, ex-Marine, wonderful young man, was sitting in my office talking to me about where his life was going. And I asked him those, that question. And his answer was, and he grinned at me real big and said, I'd tell God what a wonderful guy I am. And I cracked up. I just had to laugh out loud. He was a good guy, but that won't do it. And he had to laugh with me, and we talked further about it. And he get answers like, well, I joined the church when? Or I walked the aisle when I was nine or when I was 16 or whatever. I went forward. Or I was baptized. Or I prayed the sinner's prayer. Nathan, praying that prayer didn't save you. Now, this is startling. It was the heart surrender, not just the lips and not just the words. I'll give you my own testimony. When I was 18, young man out of high school, did not go to college at first, and I didn't have a clue where my life was going. Purposeless, drifting, and I didn't like it. And God broke into my life and got my attention, and I won't take the time to tell that story. And, but a man gave a witness to me very briefly in passing. The very next day, my buddy's mother invited me to Sunday school and church, and I went and I began to find out. But nobody sat me down and said, here's the way. Nathan, you had a great opportunity that many people don't for someone to just take you by the hand and show you here is the way to be born again. And we ought to do that for people. And finally, after about six months, I was attending church. I was hearing sermons, Sunday school lessons. And finally, now I was in college. I was a freshman in college. On an October afternoon, walking back to my dorm, I can go to that spot. And I said to the Lord in my heart, no words came out of my mouth. I surrender to you. I am yours. I trust what you have done for me to pay for my sin. You're my Savior and my Lord. And my life has not been the same since then. I knew that I should make a public issue of it. And I did. I went forward in church that Sunday and professed Christ publicly. And I was baptized and all of that. But I know what happened in that quiet moment by myself with only the Holy Spirit with me where I gave my life to the Lord. But it needs to come public. Well, many people have said these different things, but I'll tell you the one I like best of all. And I can see this picture now. I'm standing at a door. I've asked that question. And the lady at the door said, here's what I would tell God. My uncle was a Baptist preacher. And God said, good, you're in. (laughs) Forget it. You know. All of these things. A great many people have done these things. 
that I've just described, and their lives show no evidence of any transformation. It takes something else. What is it that saves? It's what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be born again. There is no other way. With all the else that happens, you must be born again. Now we're going to come to the close of this service. And you're going to have an opportunity to make a response to what you've heard. And I would like to see you respond in one of, or maybe two of two ways, one or two of two ways. One is you have opportunity to commit yourself to being a disciple maker. You know, I've, I've been a Christian for, well, many years. <laughs> Do the math. Uh, decades. And tried to share the gospel many times. But sometimes, in a casual occasion like Jesus and the woman at the well, or me and Nathan at the fence, we're talking along, and I will hear God say to me, Glenn, open your mouth. Make that commitment. Whether you do it in your pew where you're sitting or you call, I'm going to meet you here at the front. I'm standing here and ask you to come and make a commitment. But you can make it. Whether you make it to me or make it to God, the important thing is you make it to God. Okay? Make that commitment. Many do not share the gospel because they don't know how. I will help you. If you want to learn, I will help you. Now, what more can you ask than that? I will help you. And it, it can be done. And uh, all you have to do is let me know about it. Secondly, if you have, are one that's here today and you have not yet been born again, you've heard a large part of the gospel today. Not all of it. You've heard a large part of it today. And you can be born again today. You can do it in your heart like I did, walking on the campus of the college. And you need to do it there. You must do it there. That's where being born again is. But then you need to make it public. And I invite you to respond while we're closing this invitation. I'm going to ask you to remain seated during this invitation time. And Jeff will come and sing our closing song. Like the woman at the well, I was thirsting for that which did not satisfy. And while he does... God is waiting for you.